This is a Handshake Agency podcast. Okay, welcome back to the third and final instalment of Rewind's trip back 25 years to Brisbane 1996 and the release of Regurgitator's wonderful debut album, Two Playing. I'm your host, Steve Bell. As always with these multi-episode features, we recommend starting at the beginning to get the full impact of the story, so if you haven't listened to the first two parts, we recommend that you do so now, and we'll catch you back here down the track. Now in Two Playing Episode 1, we traced Regurgitator's formation back to a crazed jam at a forest hippie party, and looked at how the three band members were drawn together from Brisbane's rich underground scene, then thriving in the new post-Joe era, and we heard how the various personalities pushed and pulled as the band wrestled with their commercial ambitions, eventually signing with Warner Music Australia. As well as the members of the band, we met Regurgitator's DIY and claim manager Paul Curtis, who still looks after them to this day, as well as Michael Parisi, who signed them to Warner and went in to bat for them there, and Lachlan Magoo Gould, who worked in the studio with the Gerds from their earliest recordings. In episode two, we travelled overseas with the band to the back blocks of Bangkok as our intrepid heroes battle packs of wild dogs, crocodiles, huge moths and the dreaded dysentery, as well as surviving draconian living conditions, to pull two playing together in the studio of Thailand's biker Springsteen, Magoo all the while resorting to using toothpicks on the weed sticky console as the band weaved their magic. So now it's March 1996 and the band are back in Australia armed with two playing their debut album. In the 18 months prior to hitting Thailand, Regurgitator had built the perfect platform for their assault on the mainstream, both with their early EPs and their powerhouse live show, which was going from strength to strength, and the good news just kept coming, with Michael telling them during his trip over to drop in on the Thailand sessions that they'd scored the coveted support slot on Red Hot Chili Peppers' Australian tour that coming May, a run of huge arena shows all over the country, the first of which coincided with Two Playing's actual release day. Completely perfect. But what about Two Playing itself? Had they gone too far pushing boundaries, having been granted unfettered creative control in their contract? Would the label, and the public for that matter, get them opening their major label debut with I Sucked a Lot of Cock to Get Where I Am? What about Music is Sports, anti-corporate agenda we discussed last episode? With the blatant socio-political undertones of songs like Pop Porn and G7 Dick Electro Boogie be overlooked by commentators amidst the sardonic language and messaging? Would punters embrace the album's musically eclectic nature and how it contains three instrumentals and two rejigs of earlier hits? Magoo, the band's producer, recalls arriving back in the country exhausted but quietly confident. I think by the time we finished, um, yeah, like I, I, I felt like it was a great collection of songs and was buzzing after the whole process. So it, it became a bit of a tradition for me at the end of making an album that you'd pull an all-nighter on the last day. Uh, so I, I can't remember what song I was mixing but I do. I can't. I can remember Quan being around. So it might have been like a music at sport or pop porn or something like that. Um, uh, pulling an an all nighter in the studio, like working for twenty four hours, and then leaving the studio, going directly to the airport. And I thought, oh, I'll sleep on the plane. It'll be fine. You know, it's like a nine hour trip or something like that. I can't remember. Um, 
I thought, you know, I'll be right. I'll sleep on the plane. Of course, I couldn't sleep. And then when I got home, I had that buzz where I was like, oh, I'll listen to the mixes at home. Um, and I, I actually even think I was only home for a matter of hours before flying to Sydney to to go to mastering. I can't quite remember how the sequence of events goes, but I know I stayed up for 48 hours, unaided by drugs, uh, just because I was buzzing over the whole process. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think it felt like a, a good collection of songs. And, and like, I feel like, you know, when it comes to two playing, we really started to explore the hip hop thing a bit more concisely than what we'd done before. And I was really excited by that. Um, and it just felt like we'd gotten a bigger difference between all the genres from from the EPs, and and which which felt like that was the goal. That's what we were trying to do. So the exhausted Magoo is off down to Sydney to master two playing. Now mastering is like the darkest of dark arts. I've had it patiently explained to me by the best over the years, and still don't really understand it. But it's essentially a post production process, getting the songs ready to press on mass. You're basically making a pristine master. Think about lots of words like equalisation and compression and frequencies, that kind of stuff. Although as Magoo almost found out, it's really hard to do the mastering if you can't access the source material. The, the studio was set up uh, much like it was at Red Zed's. It was a large format console, bigger than the one at Red Zed's, uh, but it had a two-inch tape machine. Uh, we were recording everything analogue. Um, but then the master, so when I made a mix, was recorded to DAT tape. Um, and, you know, they had a DAT player there. It was all fine. I recorded all my mixes onto DAT, etc., and everything seemed great. Um, I can't even remember if I made a backup because being digital audio, you have to back everything up. I probably didn't. I don't think I was at that stage at this point. So anyway, we left Bangkok and I had this magic DAT tape in my hand or packed safely somewhere, I don't know. And I can remember going home to my share house in West End and I had a little portable DAT player. And I'm like, you know, first thing I wanted to do was hear the mixes through my stereo. And I'm listening to it going, oh, wow, this actually sounds really good. I was sort of excited um, because mastering was like the next day. There was not a lot of sleep between the finish of tracking and mastering. Um, so, you know, I had to listen to the mixes. I was excited. It sounded good. I was happy with how it sounded. So we fly down to Sydney to 301 to master with Steve Smart. And um, we put the DAT player in the DAT machine. And we're getting all this kind of sort of digital garbled noise. And it's like, ah, oh, hey, hey, Steve, what's going on here? This isn't what we recorded. And he's like, oh, there seems to be a lot of errors in the in the dat tape like digital errors um and because they had really fancy dat players at 301 they were really kind of susceptible to any digital errors and there'd there'd be so many errors every second that a normal dat player can handle but these ones seem to be really sensitive to it and i can remember going through this process of putting the dat tape into every dat tape machine that was at 301 mastering of which there would have been 10 and from my memory it may, maybe i'm overblowing the story we put it in the very last machine and that was the one that decided to play the dat tape and if not it would have been we would have had to fly back to thailand to get the two inch tapes we didn't have the two inch tapes 
uh, with us. Um, they were left in Thailand, uh, too heavy to bring back. Um, and I would have had to have remixed the, the, whole, the whole thing. So it's like these DAT tapes were worth $20,000, $30,000. And yeah, it took us quite a while just to even get the audio off the DAT tapes and into the computer for mastering. So yes, there's, there's things, you know, to answer your question, yes, there's things you need to consider that are outside of a normal recording project, but perhaps they're things that I, I didn't consider. It was, you know, too early on in my career for, you know, such things to go wrong and really I'm, I'm just thankful that it did play um I, I do remember thinking well it played in my portable dat player which was this sort of shitty little tiny dat player it's got to work somewhere and um you know i was thinking of calling up friends that may have had one in sydney that, so that we could hire it or something so that we could just simply get the audio off this these dat tapes but you know it all worked out i really think mastering was a big part of of the record and bringing it together. Um, so Steve Smart did an awesome job. I, I think my mixes, while they're kind of creative, um, and I really tried to nail each genre in that, and I think probably just in my inexperience, they also sounded quite disparate. And Steve Smart did a great job at bringing it all together. But then it was also not only that, it was all the little bits in between the songs. We were gathering lots of sounds. I, I'm sure Ben went on a sound gathering trip and we had like a mini, someone had a mini disc or maybe it was a portable DAT recorder and we would record the television. Uh, and there's all those little bits between the songs that I, I think add to the narrative of the album. And I really see two playing as an album. Um, and to me, that's really important. Um, like the order as well is really important. And then it has a kind of dynamic flow of, you know, going through familiar songs to less familiar songs and faster songs, slower songs. And the hip hop songs are kind of spaced apart. So there's a real kind of balance in, in there. And I think it's really those little parts in between the songs that kind of really help glue it together. And Two Playing was the first time that we spent two days mastering an album, which is quite a luxury. Mastering is an expensive process, and I really thank Steve Smart for helping bring it all together, making my mixes sound good, um, and spending that time with us. The band's drummer, Martin Lee, remembers the seed of doubt having been planted in his mind by the first outside feedback the band received about Two Playing. I remember, I remember us doing some interview in Thailand because... Warners came over to do some interviews at the end of it, right? <laughs> and to do some things. And they played it to like a journalist or something, like on a little boom box or whatever you had at the time. And I thought, oh, yeah, that sounds all right. That sounds all right. But, but no, no one had any idea it was going to be as successful as it was. One thing Martin was sure about, however, was the album's name, which by this time had already been bestowed. Two playing is tied for jukebox, and given the genre-bending nature of the album, it seemed to be the perfect fit. I remember I was joking, like, the record was so diverse. We were like, it's like a fucking jukebox, man. It's like a jukebox, man. You know, we were just kids. And I was like, what's jukebox in Thai, man? So I think Ben or someone ran to one of these, like, a cook or something and said, what the fuck is jukebox in Thai? And they said, two playing. And as soon as we heard it, it was like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> That that's it, and then someone drew something for us. And was like, that's it. Well, as I said once, it just fell into place. That's it. That's it. Done. <laughs> I, I, God knows how the record company felt about it at the time. You know what I mean? But um, 
but they put it out. I never, they never said anything. Regurgitators bassist and vocalist Ben Eli and the manager Paul Curtis both concede some initial reservations about how the album's more risque content would fare, but were confident given the overall anti-consumerism vibe prevalent in the mid-90s. Plus, Paul loves a challenge. I was a little bit worried about how it would go down, and I think, I don't know if my vote for us. I remember, I remember Michael Parisi, like he, you know, he'd worked with Henry Rollins and... You know, he kind of understood alternative music and was a fan of it. So I think he, I think he really got a kick out of. I sucked a lot of cock, and um, you know, I think he's genuinely a great guy who loves music. You know, I went to Meredith about eight years ago, and, and he's kind of rolling around the dirt, seeing all the bands, and you know, drinking beer, and we were hanging out just like two 18-year-old boys seeing their favourite bands. You know, I mean, he's that kind of guy. Like I. You know, he does play the role in in the corporate music world, but I think he's genuinely a music fan as well. And, you know, he's Italian. He likes a good joke, and I think he likes that. Uh, I thought I thought he liked um, that kind of um, cheeky element Plus, you know, to they, the band. They also understood the power of kind of having that, like, anti-corporate kind of sensibility. Which was big at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there was, you know, that whole kind of, like, alternative scene that, I mean, you know, and it was kind of like agitation and critiquing the whole, its whole sense of being in a way. And I think they kind of, I don't know, I think they just understood there was a certain kind of energy relative to itself and that that's just what it was, you know. I mean, yeah. like I said, they did, they did kick back particularly around the FSO thing. They, weren't, they didn't care about the song. And there's lots of... But it was just, it was and kind of like swearing weird. in the song. And it's about domestic violence. They didn't care about the song. They cared about the fact that it was sandwiched in the middle of 20 minutes of noise and there was no name on the cover, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of like shooting yourself in the foot. Like, if you want to do well, you don't do that. Yeah, but then Quan was, like, getting us to do T-shirts that had no name on it at all. Like, yeah. I mean, to me, like, I love the challenge of this kind of stuff. I'm like, and maybe, maybe I share that, that's where I share the mentality of, like, you're kind of challenging your whole sense of why you're even doing this. Um, I mean, I do that all the time, even now, like whatever it's been, 30 years of doing this kind of stuff, completely questioning why am I even here? Like, you But, know, you know, I mean, being teenagers in the 80s and growing up in that time, you know, I mean, with me and my friends, the number one band's Midnight Oil, who is bringing completely into your full front awareness you know, the dangers of nuclear weaponry with a, a guy like Reagan in power, you know, with me and my friends, there was this attitude where, like, I'm not going to go to fucking uni. I'm not going to go and get a job. I'm not going to be, like, I just don't want to be a pen pusher. Like, if the world's just going to blow up, it did have this kind of finite feeling about it. So we're like, let's just party, get wasted, play some music and just have fun fun with it and there was this kind of attitude that I felt with me and my friends that was kind of this kind of hopelessness with the establishment that had been set before and you kind of you know you graduate from high school and go oh is this it like I don't want to go to uni I just want to just go just have as much fun without any concept of the ramifications of your actions or anything I don't know 
I, I, I mean, for me, like, uh, the thing I always related to with Regurgitator, and I come to them as much as a fan, as a sort of uh, administrative uh, comrade, um, the socio-anarcho, uh, the, the socio-political kind of anarcho-type elements was always just, I mean, they weren't afraid to be political and outspoken and just questioning, again, their, their sense of being, the socialization aspects, the things you drilled in, the gender stuff, the constructs, the cultural kind of thing that you existed in. I mean, Kwan particularly was really kind of pulling that apart. As it turned out, no one needed to have worried. Two plane came out on the 6th of May, 1996. The country was coming to terms with the Port Arthur tragedy from a couple of weeks earlier. Twister was about to hit the cinemas that weekend. Kiwis OMC were in the middle of a five-week stretch at the top of the Aussie singles chart with their smash How Bizarre. On the album chart, Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill was back on top for the seventh week of a staggered ten-week run, which had been broken up by stints at number one by Celine Dion, The Cranberries, George Michael and Soundgarden, and was eventually dethroned for good by Metallica's Load album. And amidst all of this, Tuplang arrived with a bang, debuting at number three and staying in the top 50 for an incredible 32 weeks. For Michael Parisi at Warner, it was vindication for the faith he'd always had in Regurgitator, and he could soon see the excitement he'd always harboured for the band and the project spreading through the office. It felt so good. I mean, I, I had um, expectations for it to be successful, but I didn't realise how successful and how quickly it was going to be successful. And it was, um, I think, I think the co- it took the company by surprise. You know, um, me and Mark Pope knew that there was something great was going on and something special was happening. But I think, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the reps, you know, sales reps and, and some of the promo people inside Warners were like, wow, okay, this is actually real now. It's, it's no longer a little, you know, a little indie band from, from, from Brisbane. This band looks like it's going to go. And everyone, and then, and that becomes infectious, you know, like when, when people start getting the belief, you know, no matter who, who the act is, it goes around the company, spreads like wildfire. And all of a sudden, you know, what happened, like for not having any support in the early days from anyone, had the whole entire company behind that record at the time. Yeah. Success has many fathers, they say, and failure has none. For frontman Quan Yeomans, the instant success of Two Playing was somewhat surprising, especially given how critical he was about some of his own contributions. I'm always surprised. I'm always surprised that I've been able to do this as work and to be so successful so quickly and to do it in such a random, seemingly random way to me and to just have so much fun doing it as well has been incredible. So I do feel really, really lucky. But the industry thing, I mean, I never went, I tried to avoid all of the ARIA awards. I remember <laughs> the, the year that we won five or six of them. I was just in bed in a hotel room with my girlfriend watching it on TV. I, don't, I mean, we just, I didn't think I watched it all. Um, it really wasn't that important to me. And the, to this day, I still don't really understand the ratio of, you know, what would have happened if we hadn't signed to a major, if we'd just done it on our own, would we have been half as successful or even a third of as successful as we were? Would we have sold anywhere near the amount of records? How much of it was car salesmanship on their part? You know, how much of it was... Um, payola, radio payola, how much of it was coercion, you know, you don't really know. I don't, I have no idea what I attribute most of that kind of commercial success to. Was it really the band or was it really the salesmanship of, of, of Warner? You can't really tell. And so I try not to feel too attached to that success 
because a lot of it wasn't anything to do with me. As far as Duplan goes, I've I really don't listen to it much now. I think listening back to those old records, I do hear more of the I'm more critical of the sounds and my voice, the way that I, I, I found that I I was so inexperienced that I, I kept on writing songs that were out of my vocal range, like completely out of my the key that was natural for me because I've got quite a low voice, not a great pop voice at all. So I would write without thinking and put it in the wrong key and make it really difficult for me to sing. So I think, um, yeah, I think the lack of experience comes through there. But once again, it just gives it its own aesthetic, its own kind of sound and its own kind of naivety. From Magoo's perspective, it was Quan's pointed lyrics which proved one of Two Plank's key selling points, but he was still pretty blown away when the album started getting traction so quickly. I think Quan got really good at sharpening his his lyrics. Um, uh, you know, I sucked a lot of cock to get where I am. It's just got to be the best opening song on a debut album that I've ever heard. Um, you know, because it sets the scene. It, it, it lets you know that, okay... This is funny and 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 all the rest. Not not to take it too seriously, because there are some fairly serious themes in there. Like G Seven Dick Electro Boogie is, you know, that's a deeply political song. Um, it's fairly early on in the track listing. It's quite intense sounding. It's like an industrial kind of song. Um, you know, music is sport, pop porn. There's some heavy themes in there. But I just kind of think the way it's all been put together and the importance of that first song is really, you know, is is great and really helps um, make the album work. You must have been stoked when it was so well received, you know, it sold so well and went to number three. Like that's awesome for a debut album, especially from a band who's quite subversive and definitely doing their own thing. Well, well, yeah, it was. Um, I, I do remember um, after, like, w- when it came out, I went on tour with Regurgitator when they were supporting the Chili Peppers around the country on the Red Hot Minute tour. Um, and, you know, it was Triple J album of the week while we're kind of driving in vans and jumping from state to state, etc. Uh, and I can remember it being higher in the charts than the Red Hot Chili Peppers were that, that week. Uh, and that was like, you know, that was, yeah, that was a, a, a bit of a buzz. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, and and it was kind of unusual getting used to, I just started to accept it after a while, but getting used to hearing your work, like my, my work, my mixes on the radio all the time. And I got used to hearing a song on the radio and then going, oh, right, okay. Next time I'll approach the bottom end a bit differently to really nail it how I want to get it, uh, which is, you know, that's uh, I now know that that's kind of a rare thing. But at that time in my life, I just had that run of pretty much anything I worked on and particularly anything with Regurgitator just ended up on the radio. So, um, you know, it was a brilliant time for Australian music when alternative music was had that there was that little window where alternative music was allowed to take the center, center stage. And, you know, it was great. And Brisbane was on fire, right, as, as simultaneously with that period too. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I think there was that real, it was still left over from Nirvana coming from Seattle and the whole Seattle scene, uh, you know, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, 
not being from LA or New York, it's like, oh, in, in the States, they went, oh, there's music in other places. And the same thing happened in Australia. There was, there was also a big movement in Perth. Um, and, you know, yeah, I'm, you know, like I could say, lucky, right place, right time. But, um, you know, you, it, it's more there was a lot of opportunities and you've got to be around there to take the opportunities when they're there. And I'm very grateful for the opportunities that were provided to me at, those, at that time. You scored your first ARIA nomination for producer of the year for Chew Playing. Do you remember what it felt like getting that accolade? Uh, yeah, well, I actually didn't really, it didn't really register that getting nominated was a, an accolade. I thought it was just win or, or not win. So I remember being a bit surprised, um, you know, that all of a sudden I'm in the mix with people around the country. Um, and I remember being, I, I, I had, you know, I had no expectations of winning but I remember being a bit disappointed that I, I didn't win. But then it was also like, you know, it was part of, like music is sport, is <laughs> all about that. The, the, you know, I was not there for any accolades or anything like that. So I, I, I think it, it just sort of washed off me uh, quite quickly. It just, it was a bit of a buzz going to the Arias. Yeah, that was fun. Um, but uh yeah, you know, that's that that was never why I was there. You know, like you know, fast forward a few years when I won some and it really kind of actually uh became apparent to me why it was a good thing to win one. Uh before that time it didn't seem like anything. It was like oh, if I won an aria it'd be like, Oh yeah, great. Life just carries on as normal. But it did really change my life when I did eventually get the gong. Well, Magoo sadly didn't get his aria for two playing, despite being nominated for both Producer of the Year and Engineer of the Year, losing out in both categories to Paul McKercher and Wayne Connolly for their work on UMI's Alley Daily. The band also lost out after being nominated for Album of the Year, also won by UMI, Best Group, UMI, as well as the highest-selling single, which they'd been nominated for for the new EP. Happily, though, Regurgitator didn't leave empty-handed, taking home two arias, one for Breakthrough Artist and one for Best Alternative Release, in that category somehow knocking off UMI, as well as Nick Cave, Spiderbait and Pollyanna. The band's momentum now is borderline unstoppable, and as Ben and Paul explain, there were outside forces in play as well, helping them on their merry way. It did well, but I don't think... I think it really jumped up to the next level with record sales after all of the Alan Jones Christian kickback. I think that's when it started to do really well after that. I mean, I remember that. Like, I think we I mean, were kind of, of kicking already, along doing pretty well. It but was already I remember, doing its own thing. I mean, yeah. we got fortunate, like, going straight into the Chili Peppers tour and then we did a tour afterwards with the Boredoms from Japan. And, I mean, but there was already this kind of, like... Yeah. Like I said, I, I honestly feel... It was like just this organic unfolding of stuff. It was just rolling along. We were just doing so much that it set up its own momentum that was just kind of coming with it. It was very fortunately probably tied to the national expansion of Triple J as well. Yes. I mean, and their very early support and ongoing support. Arnold Frollo's was a really interesting program and very, very supportive. And they would stick with you, you know. Yeah. not sure if that happens so much these days. They seem sort of more short-term invested. But that also could be given the fact that exponentially there's far more music released as well and a lot of it 
seems to be very almost short-term in nature these days. You heard Ben mention Alan Jones and Christian Kickback there. Well, as suspected, some of the conservative sections of the media didn't miss two playing's more controversial lyrics and quickly showed that they didn't understand many of them either. Obviously, just by its nature, I sucked a lot of cock to get where I am, attracted a lot of eye when it started getting radio airplay, but it wasn't the only target of their bile. The song G7 Dick Electro Boogie, mentioned a couple of times already, is a treatise on the seismic gulf between the countries enjoying modern Western civilization and their poor third world neighbours. As well as the opening line, If I were the third world, my ass would be numb from the fucking, straight-laced pundits took particular umbrage with the couplet at the start of the second verse, Thanks for the aid, now I pay you back triple, business as usual, gangland but triple. Those lyrics are an obvious metaphor for the global geopolitical situation, but the band's critics, in their wisdom, chose to read them literally, out of context, and be mightily offended. We'll rejoin Paul and Ben discussing the furor, specifically talking about I Sucked a Lot of Cock. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, because of that song and its and its title and its content, it's talking about oral sex, you know, there was right-wing Christian group from the sunny coast uh, somehow joined forces with John, John, uh, no, not John Laws. Um, uh, Alan Jones. Alan, yeah, yeah Alan so Jones. Alan Jones was trying to get us banned. They were trying to get us banned in Kmart and major chain stores. There was a National Party woman who was a, also a Christian country artist who was part of the whole anti-regurgitator movement in Queensland. So it was funny because, you know, I mean, you know, it's Quan playing with this juxtaposition of dirty lyrics in a kind of sweet pop song against the record company, gets this kind of kickback from these conservative people on the right. And, of course, if anyone tries to ban it, all the kids want to buy it. I mean, the record was – it was selling well, but it wasn't until it started to become banned then it went, like, double platinum. Actually, the the song that Alan Jones attacked was – um, the song against multinationals on two playing, um, G7, gang, yeah, gang a gang raping of cripples line, which was essentially a metaphor. And I did an ABC interview with Alan Jones and I basically said, do you not understand the concept of metaphor? And then I said, look, you can t- push this as hard as you can. All you're going to do is build the career of regurgitator. So go for it. Yeah. And then they hung up on me. <laughs> well, there's even a line about us in his, in his, autobiography it's weird but <laughs> like know, it's weird that he would you know try and kick back against us because no, he was he was a moralist so you know michael explains that as far as he was concerned regarding alan jones and his cronies the more free publicity for the band and album the better i loved it yeah please try, try and ban us i'd like like nothing more to, to be banned because you know in, like in those days and even even today i mean to get something banned means that the kids want it <laughs> you know i must have it and um i didn't i didn't mind the controversy at all you know it was it was it was great for the band and it was them you know it's not like they were doing it for the sake of doing it they, they it was just them they made a statement they that was their that was their reason for being you know and so yeah people like alan jones and 
forget who else tried to ban it. I think there's a couple of stations that wouldn't play it either. Um, you know, it took a while for us to get on, on, on commercial radio because of that very fact. But then once Black Bugs and, and you know, Polyester Girl and Song for Winona's hit, then radio had no choice because kids were asking for it. You know, and it, they, they, literally media were sort of well, forced into writing about them and forced into playing them because they were popular. It became popular. But still, the fact that... The, the fact remains with regurgitated, even though they became a commercial success, they were still, you know, a alternative creative force. You know what I mean? They they didn't they didn't bow to the man. They didn't, you know, they didn't they played by their own rules the whole time. And and, and it was and I was quite happy for them to do so. Did you did you have um uh, overseas ambitions for them? Did you think they could go well in other markets? Yeah, we did a deal with reprise. The guy called Rob Cavallo, who was the uh, head of AR at the time, who loved them. Um, and Rob had real high hopes for them. Unfortunately for, for, for us or, or for the band, Quan had a, a, a two week touring rule. Well, he wouldn't tour overseas for more than two weeks, which is his prerogative. And it kind of killed the, band, the label's enthusiasm because they were excited about getting him on the Green Day tour. And, you know, they, yeah, Quan, Quan just said, I can't do more than two weeks. And that's so the label went, well, we can't promote you effectively then because this kind of record needs touring. And if you can't commit to, to the market, then, you know, there's 20 other acts in the queue who, who would. And so that kind of killed any, any massive US ambitions. Um, but again, you know, was I, was I disappointed? Yes, I was. But it was their choice, their prerogative, you know. I know, I know Ben and Martin would have loved to have done it, but Qantas simply had... You know, and he was he was the principal really, um, and I think yeah he had the he had the final say because it's you know he's the singer he's the main songwriter, so but yeah they, they, yeah I mean look, the, the boys did well in certain markets they they took Japan seriously because they liked Japan, you know they went to parts of Asia you know um, doing, but it, I, I I think it was more a case of you know, Quan, I don't think Quan liked the idea of you know, trudging around America over and over and over and over again, you know. He, he, he said it was like a shit, it'd be a shit fight. I remember him saying that to me. Um, you can't, you know, that's what happens in America. You, if, you can't, if you can't commit to the market, then the label normally gets cold feet. And, and they did. They put the record out, you know, um, but they didn't give it the push that I thought it was going to get when I first took it in there. Because again, we had the whole company buzzed over there, Warner Brothers and Reprise buzzed. And um, yeah, when when we told them that we couldn't tour for more than two weeks at a time, you could just see everyone's shoulders drop. You know what I mean? Because everyone's done so much hard work on it. But it is what it is, you can't, you can't change it now. That's history. Do you think the Americans could have got it? Like, do you think there's too many layers of irony or something in there for the... Well, I reckon it was, again, America was an exciting time. You know, it was like the alternative scene, you know, exploded, you know, whether it was, you know, at the time, bands like Marilyn Manson and and uh, Helmet and Bush and, you know, there was a lot of Soundgarden. It, you know, it was exciting. And, um, you know, Green Day were blowing up at the time too. And I remember, you know, Green Day's management saying that the band literally chose Regurgitated to be their main support of their Dookie tour. You know, the band loved them, Green Day, the band, and word was getting out, you know, about Regurgitator. You know, again, and, and we, unfortunately, it, it, you know, got killed in the end by um, 
the non-activity over there. And it is what it is. You know, I can't change that now. And I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll probably look back at it and go, mm, maybe it was a missed opportunity, but there's not much I could have done about it at the time. I tried to convince them, but it just didn't turn no avail. And again, at the end of the day, even though, as I said at the start of the conversation, even though I was disappointed at the time, I kind of, you know, I had to accept it and, you know, respect, you know, Kwan's wishes at the end. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. You can't force him. In fairness to Kwan, it was a three-week rule that he'd imposed on touring, not two. And also, as we'd heard back in episode one, he'd been very open about it from the get-go. Touring with a band can be a lot of fun, but it gets very gruelling after a while, like Groundhog Day with a slightly different view, especially if you're not really into the post-show partying. You physically visit a lot of places that you don't really get to check out, and for some people it's endlessly fascinating, but for others it's a total chore. Tuplang would be released in America on reprise in early 97, but as Michael just explained, the label quickly lost interest when it became apparent that Regurgitator weren't going to put their lives on hold and drop everything else to focus on that one immense market. Now while you have to admit it's crazy to think about what might have happened if Regurgitator had supported Green Day on their US Dookie tour, America was still a region that Ben and Paul weren't really sure were going to get the band. I feel like it was post-two-playing. The option was there for the band to relocate to the US. They were going to buy them a house to live in. They were going to get them a va- or you know rent a house or give them some house to live in. They were going to give, get them a van so they could just stay there and just tour, right? And that's when Kwan said, I don't want to leave Australia for more than three weeks at a time. Yeah, those guys also wanted to break America. Like, it was a dream of Martin Pope's to break America and Michael Preecy. And, and there was a resistance got a hope. There was a bit that, of a know. hope for us to do that with that record. And it was oh, released. And more so yeah. even Unit. Like, mm. But at the same time, like, there was a self... Like I said, that self-deprecation that was highly present in Regurgitator. That's, in a way, kind of Australian, like that never really, in the same manner, Tism never really registered with an international audience. That aspect wasn't so kind of common, you know, like... Uh, yes. Like, we, we toured America with Helmet and the Melvins, and we were playing to, like, massive beef, beefcake jocks on two playing, and we have these American dudes come up to us in Texas or whatever, and like, so you play that song, Sucked a Lot of Cock, you guys are a bunch of fags, right? And I just go, oh, no, man, you don't get it. You know, I mean, it's, it's homophobic and, you, you know, you don't... But Americans did, don't get that. It was uh, just a literal reading of it. Like, yeah, lit- you know, literal so it's understanding, to, yeah. It's lost in translation, you know. Um, but, I mean, even that time later on where we were working with Rick Sales, who uh, managed Slayer, and Quan did an interview in the New York Times or whatever, and basically he just derided the commercial industry and basically said he didn't care about making money. And and then Rick goes, did you see what your guy said in the paper? I still have the article somewhere. I should dig it up to get the exact wording. And I said, yeah, that's that's fine. That's the way he thinks. Yeah, but you can't be saying stuff like that. I said, I'm sorry, man, but that's how, that's how I think as well. That's, I mean, I can't tell him to not think a certain way because I actually think the same way. And he goes, oh, shit, I don't know if I can work with you guys. You know, I mean, there was always that kind of straight up. Given time, the music media in the US would also fall into the trap of interpreting Regurgitator's lyrics literally. For every great review of Two Playing in the States, there was one like the write-up on All Music, whose two-and-a-half-star rating called the album 
utterly misbegotten funk rap metal fusion, particularly pointing out pop porn, which it said goes so overboard in attacking rap misogyny that it reaches levels of offensiveness beyond anything in the true hip-hop canon. lyrics are pretty full-on but that's the point and it's not aimed at the hip-hop community why would it be and check this out for a hot take to finish the all music review and as for the opener i sucked a lot of cock to get where i am a seeming attack on alt-rock sellouts well one can't help but wonder if knee pads were included as a signing bonus with the band's fat major label deal really twisting that song to make it hypocritical doesn't even seem possible maybe americans weren't going to get regurgitator Being foreign and intellectually challenging probably isn't a winning combination over there. Australian reviews had been overwhelmingly positive, but even the lukewarm write-ups hadn't missed the point so spectacularly. I guess everyone pays closer attention to their own art, but still. From Martin's perspective, he was cool either way. He'd just been going with the flow all along. They picked it up in America. Warner Brothers US picked it up to to release it on reprise in the US. I'm thinking... Fuck. And then when we finally got to New York City and um, I saw how into it they were, I was like, oh, shit. Do you know what I mean? Because they, they picked it up and sent us off to South by Southwest and they were going to really promote it and all this sort of stuff. And So they had faith in it. But if they really knew the, the madness behind it, I don't know if they would have been so, so excited about it, but... Uh, once again, it was good, man, but Quan said he didn't want to do it, so they didn't do it. It's all good. Did you not regret that? Would you have um, liked to have given it a crack? Oh, yeah, but it. I remember, I remember when Quan said it, man, I said, hey, man, it's your deal. You know what I mean? It's up, there's three dudes in a band. We've got to listen to each other. It's your deal, no problem. We'll just go and play in Japan and Australia because because we weren't spending too much money and we were touring. We were still staying in rooms together and stuff, you know, just to save money. There was no point wasting money and just being a fucking rock dickhead. So um, we were making money and it was just like, yeah, no problems. I don't know if the other guys regret it a bit more in later years. Maybe maybe they might do, and I don't talk to them so much, so I don't really give a shit. But. Uh, Maybe they do because they actually tried to pursue a bit more of a career with the band. I sort of knew that the band was semi-fleeting, if you knew what I mean. It, I don't, yeah. I think they saw a longer term to the career of Regurgitator than I did. So 
maybe they when it was might... going really well, did you only think of it as a short-term concern? Yeah, I still think. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it was. I don't think it was going to go as long as what those guys have pursued it, which is all power to them. That's good on them. But um, I, I just, I just, not that I didn't want it to. Just, I just didn't see it. So that's why when on that third record things started to fall apart due to egos and behaviour and all the bits and pieces, I wasn't too surprised. To be honest, that's why it, that's why I jumped ship, man. Ben and Paul fully respected their friend's decision to avoid long tours and were quite pragmatic about it because while the three-week rule essentially made cracking America impossible, it didn't take all overseas markets out of the equation. We did that tour with Helmet and the Melvins and we were kind of like, yeah, they were, we did South by Southwest and they were pushing us in that way. But yeah, quite, I guess Quam just wasn't really into it as well as with the Asian kind of aspect of our band. We wanted to tour, you know, Vietnam and Japan and China and it's right on our border, you know. So I think we kind of thought, why don't we just focus more on Asia? So we kind of and do shorter tours. So that was a conscious uh, decision. None of this was driven by any... Well, from our point of view, certainly the label was more keen to break America and very frustrated with the fact that we were very forward saying to the label, look, Quan doesn't want to go there for more than three weeks. Can you deal with that? And it was like, no. And they were very upset about that. But our motivation, I feel anyway, was never about like global expansion. It was just about, hey, man, we can travel. And like one of the things I noticed with these guys, and Ben kind of pointed out before when he said about his first trip to you know, Hong Kong, etc., was... The travel, and Martin was probably more experienced anyway, but Quan and Ben, I mean, the band as a unit just seemed to kind of like elevate and grow from this kind of like experience of going out into the world. Plus Ben at the time had his own reasons for perhaps being happy to avoid long stretches in the US of A. I was like really in love with this girl uh, at the time. And, you know, I'm pretty sure she was with me as well. And then I was kind of touring a lot. And because I was always away, we would kind of break up and get back together. And always, like, I was never at home. And I actually spoke to her recently about this. And she said she was kind of a bit intimidated by the fact that I was in a band or whatever. But, you know, she went to study at art school and met this New York guy. And then she moved to New York to be with him. She was like, oh, she said, it's, you know, it's you or him. And eventually, because I was touring so much, she was like, oh, I'm going to go with him. And that's when we went over and started going to America. So I kind of felt weird about going to America because she was there. And I was really quite heartbroken by that breakup at that time. So it was pretty emotional for me. And I wasn't in a very good place, I don't think, either. Yeah. I think I might have had an undiagnosed eating disorder or something. I mean, I looked really skinny and I probably wasn't, you know, I was probably just burning the candle at both ends as well, not eating right, not sleeping right. Um, Weren't you a vegan when I met you? Yeah, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, but, you know. I was a vegan too. I think some, some weird shit was going on for me, but, you know, with the breakup and America and everything. Um, Yeah, and then Quan with Janet. Like, so, yeah, when Kwan said, oh, yeah, I don't want to go to America, I remember being kind of bummed out but going part of me, I think probably more of me wanted to go and try and do America because it sounded like a great idea. But 
the work involved, and you know, there's no guarantees with that, and there's a lot of bands have tried and died. I remember Kwan one day saying something to me like, "Oh, we're such a you know weird band, like we're such a weird band, like you know, we make." I said, "What do you mean?" And he goes, "Ah, oh, you know." We just make all these dodgy amateurish videos and we do all this kind of shit and we didn't go to America <laughs> and stuff. And I was like, are you fucking serious? That's what fucking makes you great. Like, they're all the things I love about this. And I mean, you know, the American thing was like, like Ben said, that's fucking hard work. But yeah, one of the things I observed at the time, sorry, was a bunch of bands leaving Australia to, say, base themselves in Europe. And in the process... Losing their audience here, it was stuff like Dig and Skunk Hour and stuff like that, that because they were seeking there, I mean, you got to remember, right, it was a different time. So now you kind of have this constant online presence and direct engagement stuff. You didn't have that back then. So the moment you kind of left and you weren't playing, then you, weren't, you didn't kind of exist as much. And also yeah. I remember having success with the band in Australia and seeing other bands that had had success and made some cash but blown it all trying to break it yep. and then and just coming back penniless and you kind of go, dude, that's kind of not a very good gamble actually. Like you just go to the casino and just spend all your money trying to win. You know what I mean? It's a little bit like that. I, I you remember. know, where you follow this kind of golden duck that just turns out to be a scummy pigeon. I, I remember this. I remember this. I remember this brilliant thing you said to me after we left Warner, and you said one day, "Fuck, man, this is this whole thing is just like gambling." And I said, "Yeah, like really, when you strip like business right down, essentially gambling is like the the most primal form of it. Like where you're just literally." putting money on odds. I mean, yeah. like Ben said, there's no guarantee it would have worked. And it didn't, it felt like, like I said, the self-deprecatory aspect wasn't kind of gelling as much here. And just maybe it wasn't really going to find that kind of mark. And then you blow all this money. You see it all the time now, like young bands grow fast, grow quickly, grow an international audience really quickly, then get pushed really fast overseas Someone's paying for that and ultimately it's them because most people in the music industry, most companies, they don't want to expose their risk. They manage their risk so others are exposed to it. This is one of the, com this is one of our, the, one of the problematic aspects of capitalism that it just it, risk is always someone else's issue. And so you would see these bands, I'm like, do they realise like how fast they're being pushed around that somewhere along the track someone is paying for that and they're going to be left. And you, you see what I call turbulence, where they then start shedding members because they haven't even, they've been overseas for months and months and months or a year even. They don't have any grounding. They're suddenly in debt. They come back and stop and there's no money. There's no way to live. They have to then go seek welfare for support. And then suddenly you see members dropping off because it, it's not sustainable. I mean, maybe we were spared from that, even though our situation was kind of relatively secure with the international tour support money that was afforded by the label. But, you know, um, maybe it just went the way it was meant to go, you know. I think it's pretty fair to state that Regurgitator have been pretty lucky to have had Paul Curtis along for the ride from day one. He's such a passionate believer in the band and a huge part of their group dynamic, to the point that when I interviewed Regurgitator for their Big Sound keynote back in 2013, 
It made total sense for Paul to join Quan and Ben and myself on stage because in many ways he's a part of the band. Quan concurs completely about Paul's role as an ally and mentor to Regurgitator. Incredible. We couldn't have hoped for a more... Uh, spot-on kind of character to manage us realistically. I mean, he's always been interested in the art, the music. That's all he cares about, you know. I mean, I think he was accused of managing the least – the what was it? Someone accused him on one of these big sound panels of managing the the most successful but least successful band. Or so, I don't know, remember the wording exactly, but it was kind of like an insult but he didn't take it that way because he's proud of what he's done with us and we're proud of of being of having the opportunity to work with him as well because he's never been about the money. He's always been about being fair to people we work with and never ripping anyone off and, you know, being respectful of people in the industry and, you know, enjoying the success that we had but never really capitalizing on it. And that's kind of just the way that we've operated for so many years, you know. And we do it because we work you know, he works really hard. He does everything himself. He books the stuff. He goes to most of it. I think he's been to like 95% of our shows. He does the merchandising for most of the time. He'll organize all the, all the backstage stuff while he's on the ground with us. And yeah, we pack up, we pack up, we load our own shit. We pack up our own shit. And it's been like that for a while. So it's that hands-on kind of realistic approach that he's always had. And he really just cares about music. That's all he, he's really interested in. Do you, do you look back on that early period fondly? Um, some parts of it, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I do remember being like really alienated by um, Martin in particular in the early days. I mean, I, I think of myself as I, I must have been fairly pur- puritanical when I was younger. Uh, certainly a straight edge, particularly because of Janet as well. She was a straight edge um, punk rocker and I didn't drink, I didn't smoke. Um, And Martin was pretty wayward and Ben was kind of halfway in between us and he would often um, be the bridging point between us all. And there was a lot of friction between Martin and um, and Paul also because Martin was really not happy with the way he was managing us sometimes because he he grew up in the back of a um, Chinese um, restaurant. So he... He was much more business orientated and had a nous for it. And he felt that, that Paul wasn't necessarily making a lot of the right decisions or decisions that he thought would be better for the band's career. So there was a lot of friction. And I remember that being like, particularly towards the end, obviously, uh, pretty hard to deal with at times. Um, but I do remember this just absolute joy of even the fir- from the very first tour where we just played to like bar stuff, just no one. You know, I still loved playing in the band. There was definitely an energy there that I'd never experienced before. And I could, and when it was taking off and when we would play in front of large amounts of people, I was, you know, the thrill was incredible for sure. And it still is. It's still fun to do. So, Quan addresses the frictions of being straight edge in the party focused rock and roll environment in the two playing track Social Disaster, which is somehow both hilarious and drenched in pathos. Stop in the cigarette sauna. 
Tuplang was a resounding success for Regurgitator, both creatively and commercially. It would go on to sell in excess of 70,000 units and be awarded platinum accreditation, an exceptional result for a group of young Brisbane musos from the punk alternative scene who'd refused to pander or compromise and been given free reign to do so with Warner. These things dissipate over time. The push and pull of ideologies and approaches would eventually tear the original lineup of the band apart, and the synergy between Regurgitator's subversive approach and the commercial realities of the major label world would in time sour their relationship with Warner. But for now, everyone was on the same page and basking in success. To me, the album still sounds timeless, and Magoo agrees, although his view is restricted to the lyrics rather than the music. Like I said, I think it's the lyrics that kind of really help it last because certainly some of it, like when I do listen to the hip-hop, like music is sport, social disaster, pop porn, just our, it was, we weren't really that skilled in the technology, but the band were obviously really interested in pushing the technology as far as they could. But really, music is sport and pop porn, both of them do sound like pretty cheesy sequences come off a stock standard keyboard. And I, I can remember trying to do anything I could to try and make it sound less cheesy. So a lot of it was running the drums through guitar amps. And I can re- remember running them through guitar amps, like the same amp three different times, mic'd differently. So I'd like shove a mic in the back of it. Uh, and that gave a really good low end and I go, oh yeah, this is a good low end track and then I'd mic it differently to get the mid and the snare happening and then I'd do something else to highlight the top end and then I'd have these three different tracks to make the drums feel more like Cypress Hill or the Beastie Boys or whatever we were listening to. We had no idea how they made the sounds like that. And in the end, it was, it's not a bad approach, but I can still, when I listen to it, I still hear the limitations in the production in some bits. Um, but really, in 1996, when we made it, um, and I think for myself, not really coming from a highly, like using sequences and samplers a lot um, at the time, uh, you know, I think we did a great job. Um, and But like in the end, it's, it's the songs that glue it all together. Who cares about the production? There's a, sometimes production is just a... Um, just, you know, get out of the way and try not to fuck it up. Like as, as as long as the message still gets across, you're doing well. And Regurgitator were such good performers. That's often what you had to do: just stand aside, and uh, and don't don't fuck it up. Uh, you know, so that's kind of been my mantra for a long time. And despite Magoo's long-term friendship and working relationship with Regurgitator, he's first and foremost still a fan. The overarching themes in in the record, particularly lyrically, again, kind of just build upon what Regurgitator have done before with all their comments on consumerism and capitalism and human rights and, uh, you know, uh, misogyny and all sorts of things. I I just sort of, I, I think at the time I wasn't really aware of how important the lyrics were. I was just focused on the sounds and trying to make it um, uh, sound as as good as I possibly could. But I think it's the lyrics that kind of help make the record have that long-lasting impact and why we're still talking about it now, 25 years later. Um, so, you know, like I, I think at the end of the day, I'm just a fan of the band. 
they were a fantastic band. I shouldn't use past tense. They are a fantastic band. Um, and sitting around and watching them build a song um, was, you know, I, I feel very lucky to be in the best seat in the house to to have, have been there and, and watch that happen and be a part of it. So I'm just really thankful for the whole experience. Like, you know, when I was uh, 26, I would have been 25, turning, it would have been 26 by the time the record came out. You know, I was young and pretty naive and uh, I, I'm only thankful for the experience. And Michael Parisi, who ushered the band into Warner and was in their corner the whole time, still a fan. That was the whole thing about Rigorous Charlie. He just didn't know what to expect on any given day. You know, what kind of demos are they going to send me? You know, um, what's the next record going to sound like? What's the live show going to, what's the next live show going to be like? You know, what's Quan going to, what's Quan going to wear on stage tonight? You know, last time it was a pink dress. What's it tonight? You know, you just didn't know. There was the, there was the, uh, the unexpected about that band. And there's kind of like a, for me, it's like almost an element of danger about them too. In, the, in, the, in, in that very sense that you didn't know what was going to happen next, you know. Fashion-wise, music-wise, you know, live-wise, it was just like there was always a question mark around regurgitator. What are they going to do next? And that was the most exciting thing about the project because you just didn't know. And you know, imagine, imagine like knowing what's going to come next. And, you know, like having everything regimented. And, and with these guys, it was like, you know, what, what marketing ideas they're going to come up with now? What's the video going to look like next? You know, it just you just didn't know. It was it? It was all all very exciting. And while it felt, you know, it, you know, it felt extremely planned, you know, because they, they, they did plan out their videos and their imaging and all that kind of stuff, there was still an element of, like, DIY right through the whole thing. That was the constant theme, I think, of the whole project or both projects, just, just their, their very DIY nature, which, which, which they still have, you know, with, they do everything themselves. And that's, that's the beauty of Regurgitator. You know, they've, they've managed to maintain that element you know, the DOI thing, and, and it's, kept, it's held them in good stead. They're still going after, what, 25 years? You know, you must be doing something right. They're still going, right? And, and people and people still like them. I mean, I remember it fondly, you know, because it was fun It was fun to work on. And they were fun, they were fun to be with. And, they were, you know, and Paul Curtis was a great, you know, fantastic manager to, to work with. And, you know, it was a really, really good team. We had a fantastic team. And I'm, yeah, I'm very proud of it. Very proud of both both those records, and, and proud of the band in general. You know, they're they're a great band. I, I'm still a fan. I'll always be a fan. And Martin Lee, the founding member, whose experience and input proved so crucial in this early period, but who would leave the band fairly acrimoniously a few years later and effectively turn his back on the music industry. Sadly, not so much a fan. Do you, do you look back fondly still on you know that era though, like when it was going well? Yeah, the yeah the creative part and joking around. When when we were good, it was good, and um, but but it, I, yeah, a few of those memories are soured to me just by certain things that happened. So that that's why I've never really spoken about it because it's you know it's it's no big deal to me. But um, just yeah, a few things soured me on on certain personalities and the, the way they went about things. And as for those who are still flying the regurgitator flag to this day, Ben and Paul are still grappling with whether taking the major label route was the best decision, despite the unfailing backing of Michael Parisi and Mark Pope at Warner, or whether they might have kicked all those goals anyway. You know, I think that's why I set 
Pangaea side to go with Quan just because of this honesty and realness about about his words and this reflection of where the world's at. You know, because we'd come through the 80s. We'd come through the 80s and it was just like so over-the-top, glitzy. I loved it, but, you know, I mean, it was his thing. And then, you know, you got into the early 2000s and especially in Australia, being a high school student, grade 11, 12, and even leaving school and the bands that were big and popular or the bands that were pushed by major record companies were kind of average, you know, Roxas, Mantissa, The Sharp, Chocolate Starfish, kind of go, like, are these the commercial bands? Like, you know, kids can see through the bullshit so you kind of gravitate more to, I don't know, hard-ons, cosmic psychos, the energy, the, the mosh pit, you know, stage diving. It felt like you were really part of it. Chocolate Starfish and all these other bands, they were like, it's not real. It's not grounded in reality, you know. And I felt like the dinosaur is dying. And so I felt, for, you know, if, to come in, to step into there it was pretty good timing because i mean if if we'd come out say now or in the middle of the 80s we probably would have been a waterfront band who sold you know five ten thousand copies or something but just the timing at the time maybe, was maybe quite not. good i mean the I diy guess. thing is far more pronounced now and if you can kind of if you have the right thing going on and it can find an audience which is far easier to do in some respects yeah but you're not going to sell yeah. four times platinum or no no but you guess <laughs> it doesn't happen anymore yeah but the thing is right, gonna, yeah that, you that's don't, a, if you're doing it diy you don't actually need to sell four times platinum sure where you, you know you, you you we got a very small royalty from warner and like there was also a 25 package 25 percent packaging deduction taken i mean mind you the deal we had with them was pretty extraordinary 50 percent recoupability with then an international tour support which was 25 percent recoupable I mean, we had some yeah. pretty fucking crazy shit. And that's not come from, like, again, like I said, it comes from this kind of hard-to-get kind of aspect, these kind of DIY aspirations, and then the fact that we worked with two people who were amenable and open-minded enough to kind of work with these kind of situation, you know, this kind of situation. Like, yeah, I, I don't think this could have happened without, say, with some, with some of the other A&R people and stuff I've struck. I mean, like, commerciality can suppress creativity and you've i mean you can never really tell what's going on but you can kind of get the sense that a lot of commercial music has a very strong presence of being manufactured to it you know i don't know am i being judgmental am i being arrogant assuming that like and i listen to an extremely broad range of music and these guys make an extremely broad range of music but i feel like we've always sat outside of that been like it's been motivated as much by a resistance to that, like, I don't know. I know I go on a lot about this shit sort of too complying much. as well with the pop thing. Like, you sort of, like, that's what Klein always loved is Yeah, that but you're even fucking with that. Yes, I mean, but, you know, but still making it. Sucked though. a lot of cock to get where I am. I mean, you know, it's pop that's, rock, but it's fucking just basically saying success comes from the cock I've sucked. Like, you're throwing yourselves under a bus. <laughs> it's fucking sheer brilliance. I mean, that's how, what, why I relate to. Mm. The fact that you're screwing with yourself, but you're, you're calling stuff to the surface. You're questioning things in the process. Ultimately, you could argue such hypotheticals until you're blue in the face, and Ben and Paul prefer to think of the reality, which is that all of them shared a special journey 
one in which the combination of personalities somehow exceeded the sum of the individual parts. Yeah, look, I think with some bands, it's you know, bands are really interesting because, you know, you pull one person out and put one in, it's a very different thing, and everyone creates such a different sound from so many different people. Like you get someone from that band and that band and put them together, it's going to sound completely different to that band. And, um, you know, sometimes you see it where, you know, you'll see a band and it's just got like all the right kind of moving parts and it kind of, I don't know, it's sort of those parts that work together sort of elevate it into something something greater than just just the sound too. Um, you know, I've seen it with a lot of bands like the Planets Align and I don't know, it's kind of, I really love that sort of stuff. And it doesn't happen. I've played in, you know, as Paul knows, I've played in so many bands and there's only been, you know, I think, yeah, that band's probably the only where I've had that kind of, oh, wow, this is this is fun. It's like, and it kind of is a combination of Martin being this real kind of wild party guy and Quan being this really nerdy outsider intellectual who does who's a straight edge guy and, you know, them bouncing off each other. They both like the same kind of music, but they're very different people and it creates a different... Different, which, different kind of thing, which something. generates yeah. again that kind of idea of tension, like, yeah. and how that impacts the creative process, I suppose. Yeah, Quan, for his part, while preferring to focus on the band's inherent rapport with their fans, also concedes that all of the two playing success can be boiled down to the natural chemistry between he, Martin, and Ben. But first, the crowd connection. Oh, look, you know, just playing Saturday night. For my mum's 80th, uh, that's still there. You know, people still, I mean, I fucked up. I forgot half the lyrics of track one, I think it was, and I had to stop the band because I couldn't remember it. So there is that kind of, there is this kind of family feeling that you generate with an audience over those that amount of years, and it's real. With us in particular, it's very, we're very much, we've always made people feel comfortable, I think, seeing us, even though we can be quite conf- confronting and loud and noisy. Um. A really sweet um, message from Yoshko, who is Yumi Steins's mum, who was Ben's partner for some time and had two kids with. She came to the show and she'd only seen us once before, I think. Over the whole years they were going out, she'd only ever seen us outside and this was the first club gig she ever went to. And she, you know, she summed it up really well and she said that she... She was really surprised because she didn't think she'd like the noisiness of it, but she was. She felt a real emotional kind of connection and felt this warmth, even though it was noisy and erratic and weird. And she's like a 75-year-old Japanese woman, very, very quiet and meek, kind of like very prissy. Um, and I think that's the kind of reaction we get from a lot of people. They kind of just, they see us as human and that's what it's about for us, that connection with people and not you know, getting up on our high horses and, and being different. It's just, and for many, many years we toured without crew and I've always had this thing where I do my thing, I give it my all, I have fun, I I put out, we try and put out the best vibes we can. After it's over, I go down on the floor and I pack up my shit on stage in front of people. Before I even like talk to anyone or shake anyone's hand or sign anything, I pack up all my shit. That's my zen focus for finishing a gig I focus, I do my work, then I can move on. And I think, um, you know, people people don't expect more than that from me or the band. They, they know what they're going to get. They know it's going to be a little bit quirky, a little bit unprofessional at times. But um, 
they accept it. And I think there's that level of acceptance between us and an understanding between us and our audience that's stayed with us from the early days until now. Do, do you remember any point listening to playback of two playing when it was finished or coming together and whether you're proud of what you'd done? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if I ever really did that on any of the records. It was generally like you get it out of your system and then you don't want to hear it again, or at least, you know, not until you're on tour. And then it's a different feeling when you're playing it live to an audience that's responding in an emotive way. So it's a different, definitely a different feeling. I'm not one of these people that kind of listens to my own music after it's been put out into the public. I mean, I had I could count the number of times I've I've listened to either of those records on one hand, unless it was to relearn the lyrics or relearn the chord progressions because I'd forgotten them. But yeah, no, I I kind of don't. I don't. I do feel proud about how weird the records are for the time and, and I do understand why people like them, but I would never describe them as works of great art or anything like that or I would never feel like they were something special in particular. They just seemed like an outlet for us and we got very lucky because other people sort of found the honesty and found the weirdness of it alluring. And because, I mean, it's all contextual as well. I think there was a lot of conservative music out at the same time. So it was something, there was a point of difference. And even our Asian-ness was a point of difference as well. There was two Asians in the band and, and Ben was a, a charismatic, good-looking figure. And it just had the elements that made it, made it special at that point in time. And I do get that. So there you have it. The incredible story that is two playing. And I'm particularly happy that Kwan's mum popped up again there at the end to bookend proceedings. Obviously, this is only the beginning of the regurgitator story with so many adventures soon to follow. Not focusing on America would turn out great. Almost immediately after Tuplang made them one of the biggest bands in Australia, regurgitator would all but abandon the hard rock and rap elements that had drawn them a massive but increasingly masculine and macho crowd in favour of a future-looking synth-pop sound and find even greater commercial success with their 97 follow-up unit. And ever self-aware, this time the first song on the album was one of Ben's, titled I Like Your Old Stuff Better Than Your New Stuff. Always one step ahead. And even as members eventually drifted into state over time, Regurgitator as an entity remained, and remains, a resolutely Brisbane band. In the immediate aftermath of two playing, they took their rightful place on the main stage of the 96 Livid Festival, which had retained its original mission statement of shining a light on Brisbane music and art, with regurgitated one of the headliners alongside Powderfinger and some other ring-ins like Garbage, Silverchair, The Jesus Lizard, Everclear and Weezer. A few weeks later they would headline the Easy Cheese gig, which also shone a light specifically on local talent, selling out Festival Hall alongside Custard, Powderfinger, Blowhard, Pangaea, Benzolban and Kylie Gaffney. That New Year's Eve they rocked Festival Hall again for the New Year's Eve in Living Stereo Bash, this time alongside the Lemonheads and Dirty Three. Brisbane was no longer somewhere for its bands to escape at all costs, and the city was all the richer for it. So thanks so much for joining us on Rewind's Look Back at Two Playing. This whole exercise would be pretty pointless without you tuning in, and I hope you can join us again on our next musical exploration. Thanks heaps to Paul for helping line everything up and his insight, as well as Ben, Quan, Martin, Lachlan and Michael for being so generous with their time. Thanks as always to my tireless engineer Zig, to producers Craig and Masty, and everyone at the Handshake Agency. 
We'll leave you with two playing's opening song, the one we've probably talked about the most, and the one that pissed off Alan Jones. Here's I Sucked a Lot of Cock to Get Where I Am. one you made it thanks so much again for checking out rewind please rate review and subscribe if you feel so inclined or if you know any gurge fans or lovers of oz rock in general please let them know about the podcast catch you soon rewind with steve bell is a podcast from the handshake agency network produced by craig treweek and andrew Mutt. recorded and engineered by zig parker Theme music by Dollar Bar.